My name is David Brown, as you can see up there. I am uh, just a member. I am not on staff, and I'm here to first remind you that sometimes you get what you pay for. Um, and I'm just saying that to set you up for success this morning because one of my favorite equations in life is that satisfaction equals reality minus expectation. So that's a, something to take away today. Um, two announcements before we jump in. Uh, first of all, I also want to say happy Independence Day. Um, I am so thankful for what our founding fathers did on July 4th, 1776 at that Second Continental Congress. And um, I'm so thankful for all those who sacrificed their lives between then and today to give us the freedoms that we have, especially the freedom to gather um, and worship freely as we see fit. So um, just thank, praise God for that. Um, and then the second announcement is that there is no child care today, as all of you parents with children already know. This is a family-friendly service. Um, and please do not worry um, if your baby cries. I will not be bothered. Uh, as my wife can attest, I have a 10-month-old and a 2-year-old, and I'm very good at ignoring a crying baby. So, um, so please do not worry if your baby cries. All right, today we are going to begin a four-week series on this often elusive and enigmatic person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. Um, why should we study the Holy Spirit? Well, I just jotted down four reasons to start us. Um, I'm sure there are more. First, the Holy Spirit is God. Um, sometimes we even forget this. We think it's something different. But the Holy Spirit um, is one of the Trinity uh, that comp comprises God, and we are called to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we cannot love what we do not know. So that's one reason to study the Spirit. The second is the Holy Spirit is mysterious, like the wind, as he is described in Scripture. Um, he is invisible, he is often inscrutable, and he is sometimes seemingly unknowable. And we'll never fully understand the Spirit. There is some mystery to him, as Jesus even says. Um, but there is much that we can know and have confidence in, uh, some of which I hope to unpack today. A third reason to study the Spirit is that he is often forgotten, um, we always talk of Jesus. We even have that mission statement out on, in the big, bold letters in our foyer that says to know Jesus and make him known. And that's appropriate because the Spirit also always points to Christ. Um, but uh, while we don't forget Jesus and we don't forget the Father, partly because they're more easy to visualize, right? We have earthly uh, parents. We have earthly sons. It's easy to visualize a person like that. It's much more difficult to visualize a spirit. It's much more diff difficult to visualize the wind and, um, and so even though we visualize the Father and Son, uh, although we do it inaccurately often, it's easier to do that than to visualize the Spirit. And so we need to focus some time on the Spirit um, so that we can perceive Him and His work. In addition, the Spirit never draws attention to Himself. Um, the Spirit always points away from Himself to the Son and to the Father. Um, he, is, he is forgotten because He does not seek attention, and He is submissive to the will of the Father and the Son. And then fourth, for some of us, we think of the Spirit like a crazy uncle, almost embarrassed to talk about. Um, talk of the Spirit brings up thoughts of charismatic Pentecostals speaking in indecipherable tongues, um, something that Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians, and we'll get to that, I think, in the next couple of weeks in our study on 1 Corinthians. And if this is you, if you worry about this, don't worry. I'm, I will not be speaking in tongues this morning. Um, I am not providing a new revelation or taking you on any mystical journey this morning. Um, so today, I just hope to unpack and dispel some of the mystery of the Spirit and place a proper spotlight for at least a few minutes on this amazing person of the Trinity that we call the Holy Spirit. Uh, in order to do so, we first must take one step back and unpack the Trinity. So I'm going to kick off this four-week series by speaking of the Trinity, and then we'll get to the person of the Spirit. 
Um, we're going to, I basically have three points today. Uh, one is that uh, the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. Then we will unpack the Holy Spirit as the life giver and life sustainer. And then finally, we will unpack the Spirit briefly as the author of Scripture, the means by which he transforms us. So this is a topical study, which means I'm going to show a bunch of verses and read a bunch of verses today. That's not our typical diet at this church. We typically um, you know, unpack verse by verse through one book of the Bible, and we take a long time to do so, as, uh, as Chris is uh, very well unpacking 1 Corinthians for us. And that is, the, that is the healthy, normal diet. So this is kind of an atypical uh, sermon series for us, but it's worthwhile to do this. And so um, it may make sense to jot down the verses that I'm going to put up on the screen for you today or to take some screenshots, or I'm happy to send you slides afterward for your further study if you would like. So let's get into it. The doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine is uh, that God exists eternally, which means no beginning and no end, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence, but three in person. This is a mystery and a paradox but it is not a contradiction. Um, and uh, this, we have to acknowledge that this is very strange. Um, all, the two other monotheistic religions in the world, Judaism and Islam, uh, go to great lengths to show that God is one uh, and to show that Christi- Christianity is actually a polytheistic religion. So how do we combat that? How do we say that we are actually a monotheistic religion, that God is one, although he has three persons? Uh, let me unpack my, my definitions here first. So a mystery. A mystery is just something that's difficult to understand. Um, so uh, nothing, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but we won't fully understand the Spirit in this life, nor will we fully understand the Father or the Son. There is some mystery to them, but they're not entirely mysteries. The second word I want to define is a paradox. Um, a paradox is something that seems like a contradiction, but it's actually not. And uh, so let me give you an example through a riddle those that know me uh, probably thought I might try to fit a riddle into this sermon. So uh, here's a riddle for you. Let's say I have a friend who has, a, who has two children, and I tell you that one of them is a boy. What is the likelihood that the other is a girl? My friend has two children. One is a boy. What is the likelihood the other is a girl? If you're thinking clearly, you might say 50%, right? The fact that they have one child that's a boy doesn't impact the other child. And that's clear thinking, but it's actually wrong. And here's where the paradox is. There are four permutations, boy-boy, boy-girl, girl-boy, and girl-girl. If I tell you that one is a boy, I've only eliminated one option, meaning there are still three options. Two of those three have a girl in them, which means it's actually a two-thirds chance that the other is a girl if I tell you that one is a boy. That is an example of a paradox. It is true, but it's counterintuitive. It's it's, a... It's a bit strange, but as you think through it, you can come to know it. And that is what the Spirit is like in many ways. The Spirit is a a paradox, and the Trinity is a paradox, but not a contradiction. A contradiction is something that is logically impossible, and nothing that God does or says is uh, contradictory. Now, this would be true. It would be true that, that the Trinity were a contradiction if, in fact, essence and person are the same thing, but they are not. You might say, is essence versus person? That sounds like a distinction without a difference, but it's not. Essence and person are, personhood are two different things. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is Jesus himself. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus had two essences in one person. 
Another strange thing, a paradox, but also true. Um, now, this is the opposite of, of three persons in one essence, but it illustrates the point that essence and personhood are different things. In the same way, this is true of us. I mean, we have uh, both the spirit in us, and Paul, and Paul in Romans 7, Paul describes this internal battle that we all wage. Um, he, uh, and he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. So even in ourselves, we battle these, this two, these two natures. So the point here is not necessarily to resolve the entire mystery. Of course, there will be some. But to show that essence and person are distinct things, and therefore God can be one in essence and three in person. Um, I won't be able to unpack all of this, you know, by any means today, uh, nor will be, would we be able to in this life even if I had uh, all the time in the world. We have to acknowledge that on the surface this does sound a little crazy, um, but it is not contradictory. And we also must acknowledge that the only reason we believe this is because the scriptures clearly teach it. So let me unpack a few of these uh, verses real quick as we, um, as we unpack, make sure we lay the scriptural foundation for this Trinitarian nature of God. First, let's establish that there is one God. So in Deuteronomy 6.4, this is called the Shema um, uh, to Jews. Even today, Jews say this prayer twice, every day. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it couldn't be clearer, right? The Lord is one. But wait a second, even in this one verse, things aren't as clear as they may originally seem. Uh, the word that is used there for God, when it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, that word is Elohim. The I am ending there, Elohim, pluralizes a word in Hebrew. And so even in this one verse where the Lord says, I am one, he refers to himself in the plural. That's very strange. Um, we know this I am ending when we think of, uh, you think of Abram's name being changed to Abraham, right? So in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he does so to connect his name with the idea of a multitude or many. Um, Genesis 17 says, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, adding the I-M ending onto Abram's name, turning his name into a plural. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So this word Elohim, this plural name for God, occurs more than 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And that's a very strange way for God to refer to himself if he is jealous to be known as one God, as a singular God. And there are even instances where he distinguishes his name to make sure that he is singular when referring to a plural. So here's one example. In Deuteronomy 32, um, it says that they sacrifice to demons, meaning the Israelites, which are not God, gods that they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. Now, in this uh, verse, the Lord chooses to refer to himself as a singular. He says, Eloah, not Elohim. And the reason he does that is to distinguish himself from all of the counterfeit gods, which are also called Elohim in this verse. So God can distinguish himself. He can, he can refer to himself in the singular. Why does he not do that all the time in the Old Testament? I think the answer is that he is laying that foundation, that he is a plural. He is a three in one. 
He chooses very commonly to do this throughout the Old Testament. As I mentioned, 2,500 times does he, do, does he refer to himself as Elohim. There are, there are a number of other verses we could, we could go through in the Old Testament to, to nail this home. I just want to mention two more. One is Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of Scripture. It says, in the beginning, God created. That verse, even that, the first sentence of Scripture, God refers to himself in the plural. And then even in the next, next sentence, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, that word, Elohim, again, is used in that first sentence, but he uses a singular verb to refer to how he, uh, how he creates. So when it says, in the beginning, God created, that word created is a word that you would, when you read it, 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 it implies that the, the noun is singular in the sentence, not plural. So it actually doesn't make sense. The sentence itself is, a, is an improper Hebrew construct. But again, God is sending us a signal that he is a plural, even in the first sentence. Um, this is something that's unique, uh, not unique, but it, it's different than English. So in English, I would say, I eat or you eat, or they eat. And I just use the word eat. That's the verb, and I don't change it depending on whether I'm referring to me or you or multiple people. That's not the case in many other languages around the world, including Hebrew. In Hebrew, the verb needs to match the noun. And so another example, some of you may know Spanish. In Spanish, I would say, if I say I eat, I say como. If, if you eat, it's comes. If they eat, it's comen. So I change the verb in order to match the noun right? But in the Bible, we don't see this. We see that God is using a plural noun with a singular verb. Just one more example. In Genesis 1.26, when God is talking about creating humans, he says, then God, in plural, Elohim, said, singular, a singular tense there, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Each of those verbs, to make in our image after our likeness, is all in the plural form there. So it's interesting that when the writer of Genesis refers to God and said God is speaking, the writer uses that singular uh, verbs when he says says. But then when he's quoting God, God himself uses a plural to talk about himself. So God clearly wants us to understand that there's this plural nature to himself, even from the very beginning of Scripture. So God is one in essence, but he is three in person. Let me just uh, very briefly articulate who those three people are through a couple of verses. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there we have it, the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself uses the word name there, which is also singular. Again, he is telling us that God is three in one. It's one more briefly. When Jesus is baptized, it says when he immediately, when he came up out of the water, so we have Jesus here, behold, the heavens were open and the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. So there's the spirit. So we have Jesus, the spirit. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So there's the father, the voice in heaven. So once again, there are a number of these passages. Jesus constantly refers to the father and the spirit as separate beings um, himself. So there's so much more we could say about the Trinitarian nature of God, but we'll have to say that for another time. I just wanted to begin this series by unpacking that. Now let's move on to uh, the person of this series, which is the Holy, which is the tr- which is the uh, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force of nature, something that we take hold of. Um, 
The Holy Spirit is a, is a person. And, and the difference between an it and a person is that a person conveys being, will, intelligence, attitude, individuality, activity, communication, and even feelings. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. So um, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. And, that, and the Holy Spirit is, is the person that sustains all life. We don't think about this, but he sustains both our physical life and our spiritual life. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, let's see the Spirit as the physical life giver and life sustainer. Our first hint for this is that um, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word spirit also means breath or wind. And so the Spirit himself is kind of referred to as that as the exact same thing that sustains our life, a breath. And this word for breath or wind occurs, you know, over 375 times in the Old Testament, over 380 in the New Testament. And two-thirds of those times when we use that word spirit, breath, or wind, we're referring to, the Bible is referring to God. Um, and that is the name of the series. I think, I think you may have seen some, some marketing for this uh, series called Numa. Numa is the Greek word for spirit, but Numa also means wind or breath. And the Hebrew word is ruah, and it means the exact same thing, wind or breath. So throughout the Bible, we see this play on words as the spirit is connected to our physical life. Let me just show you a few of those. In Job 33, it says, the spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there's a connection with the spirit sustaining our physical life and creating our physical life and animating our physical life. In Psalm 104, we see, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away your breath, their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So again, God's spirit or his wind or his breath being connected to creation and to the removal of life physically. In Job 34, <clears throat> Speaking of God, it says, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Here we see that the spirit is the sustainer of life. In Genesis 6, God says, the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God himself says, I will remove my spirit and in that way I will remove physical life. I will shorten the physical life of man by removing my spirit. So, um, I'm a, well, I will, we'll skip this section here with, for the sake of time, but there are, obviously there are passages that talk about Jesus creating as well. I think the, the distinction that I would make, the way I parse this, is that Jesus is the, is the creator of all substance and matter, but the spirit is the creator of life. He's the animator of life. Indeed, the Spirit even gave life to Jesus himself. In Matthew 1, it says that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one that gave birth to Jesus, brought him to life. So this physical life, just to conclude this idea that the Spirit gives physical life, and we don't think about that. This physical life is one of God's common graces to all of humanity we don't deserve our next breath, but God gives us that next breath for as long as he gives it. And this is common grace. So second, let's focus on the spirit as the spiritual life giver. So not only does he sustain physical life, but he also sustains spiritual life. 
In John 3, this is a verse that many of us are familiar with. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the word pneuma there, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the pneuma, or the spirit. So again, God connecting this idea of the wind and the spirit. Um, and this is a, a very a common verse, and, and one that, that we all know, and um, it's easy for us to think of the Spirit as granting spiritual life. But uh, just one quick side, I want to. This is a play on words, right? The, the idea of wind and spirit, and there are many of these plays on words throughout uh, the old, both the Old and New Testament. And the only way to understand those plays on words is to know the original language, which I don't. But I used an interlinear study Bible, and I just would highly recommend that you guys incorporate that into your study. There's so much to be gleaned from and understood from Scripture when you understand what the actual root words being used are and all the puns that God uses to, get, to illustrate points. And there are many good resources for interlinear study that have the Hebrew and Greek or the Hebrew and English uh, together. So just one more verse on this. Um, in Titus 3, God says, uh, that he, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates us and gives us new spiritual life. So many other passages we could talk about um, uh, related to the Spirit giving uh, spiritual life, supernatural, everlasting life. In Ezekiel 36, I'll just, I'll just two more quick ones, then we'll move on. Is the prophecy. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So there's the spirit giving new birth, new life, new spiritual life. And then in John 14, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here we see reference to the, not just the awakening of the spirit, but the indwelling nature of the spirit, both in Ezekiel and in John 14. So we see in these passages in Ireland, the Spirit awakens us. The term that we use is regeneration to new life, but the Spirit also indwells us and sanctifies us in an ongoing way. We see that the Spirit convicts us with regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment, that the Spirit guides us into all truth, helps us remember God's laws, and even more importantly, empowers us to obey God's laws. You saw in that Ezekiel verse, it said that I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So how does the Spirit do this? Upon regeneration, upon accepting Christ, do we become possessed creatures or do we become robots watching the Spirit control our every movement? Are we zapped and in an instant do we become like Christ? If only that were the case. Do we chant an incantation three times a day and that gives us this power to unlock the Spirit? Do we try to interpret all the tea leaves around us do we 
think about every thought that enters our head, and that's the Spirit talking to us? Do we need to speak in tongues to show that we have this indwelling power? All these questions arise with how does the Spirit work in our hearts and work through us? And so I want to spend just a moment on that last point this morning. This is to highlight that the Spirit is the author of Scripture and to demonstrate that the primary way we receive this transformative power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is by studying God's Word. I use that word primary carefully. I'm tempted to say only, but I don't want Chris to get a bunch of angry emails. So I would just say primary. But I will confidently say that the Spirit's primary method of sanctifying us and empowering us um, to do God's work is through the Word that the Spirit has written. Let's just first briefly remember that the Spirit has written every word of Scripture. In 2 Peter, we see that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And in 2 Timothy, we read that all Scripture is breathed out by God. That word there, breathed out by God, is an interesting word. It's a compound word. It's theonustos. And you see theos is the word for God. Nustos is the same as pneuma, right? That's, that's the same as, as spirit. So that compound word is where we get this idea that God, that all scripture is breathed out by God or breathed out or given by the spirit of God. All scripture is given by the spirit of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be com- complete, equipped for every good work. We'll come back to that. Plenty of other passages we could look at related to this. Um, including Jesus' affirmation that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, but we don't have time for all that this morning. Um, The Holy Spirit clearly carried men along to write both the Old and New Testament. And this is why we believe that the Scriptures, even though written by over 40 authors over thousands of years, and written by men in a literal sense, were also written by the Spirit. And this is why the Bible is our authoritative guide to truth, to right and wrong, to wisdom, and to know the mind of God, no matter what culture tells us. So now that we've established that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, let's connect this activity in our final few minutes to the um, indwelling power that the Spirit gives us to live as God would have us live and to change us to be like Christ. So just a quick story. When I was a kid, um, I wanted a superpower so bad. And I'm sure many of you did, but you didn't want it as bad as I wanted it. And I wanted to fly for the longest time. And I honestly thought, you know, when I was a kid, that if I, if I tried hard enough and thought about it hard enough, I actually might be able to do it. I, re- I really remember thinking that as a kid. And then I was introduced to the X-Men, and, and Nightcrawler became my favorite X-Men, and I wanted to teleport so badly. And that was even better than flying, because when, flying still takes time to go from point A to point B, but teleporting, you can get there immediately. And then in grade school, after watching Star Wars for the first time, I wanted to have the force. I wanted to be able to control the movement of objects with my mind. I mean, who doesn't, right? And I spent many hours, like I literally, this is kind of embarrassing, I spent time at the lunch table, you know, making my hand into three fingers like Yoda and trying to move my juice box, my ecto cooler, trying to move it across the table. I really did that. Um, But sadly, I'll report to you that none of those uh, ever worked. I have not flown, I have not teleported, and I haven't moved anything with my mind yet to this this day. But I found out in high school that there was an actual actual superpower at my disposal. 
I could live with the power to overcome sin and temptation, the power to truly have free will and to choose to do what I wouldn't regret next week or in a thousand years. I could have the power of joy in all circumstances and at all times. I could have the power to love others the way that God loves them and to share the gospel without fear, the power to think clearly about difficult topics, to have wisdom beyond my years. And make no mistake, these are superpowers. These are superpowers that the Holy Spirit gives us. These are imbued by the Spirit of God as he indwells us and changes us, literally changes us to conform to Christ. Through study, meditation, and prayer over Scripture, just as 2 Timothy, uh, that passage we read, said. So this fueled my passion, partly, for reading the Scripture in high school um, when my faith really became real for me, and it worked. I was transformed. I really did change. My heart changed. My mind changed. I was able to avoid temptations. I was able to love, love others differently. I had unshakable joy. Just as Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing it, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So that's one piece of the story. But also in my 20s, I went through another phase where I wanted even more. I wanted even more than what the Spirit had given me already. I wanted to speak in tongues, and I prayed repeatedly for it. I wanted to be led by the Spirit in every decision. I wanted to know who to call that day or who to text and what to say. I wanted to know what to buy at the grocery store. I wanted to know if I should drive somewhere else after work instead of going home. I dwelled on every thought that jumped into my head and thought, maybe this is from the Spirit. Should I act on it? I tried to enter this hyper-spiritual state for a while, reading every tea leaf, over-interpreting every interaction with, with people, and dwelling on anything that popped into my head. And I only became confused, discouraged, and disillusioned with the Spirit through this process. And I think my motives are partially good and partially bad. I, I, I definitely wanted to have an intimate relationship with God. I wanted to know Him. I wanted to know His will for my life, and I wanted to follow it. But at the same time, I wanted certainty. I wanted certainty that I should do X instead of Y. I wanted tangible evidence that God was with me at all times. And this desire for certainty is no different than Gideon's demand that God perform miracles for him two nights in a row before he would listen to him. God has no obligation to give you a proverbial wet fleece or a dry one. And the desire for certainty is a form of trying to control God, something that I tried to do, and it extinguishes faith. What brought me out of this season was getting back to Scripture, reading Scripture and realizing that this is not the Holy Spirit's normative way of working through believers. Rather, he has written a book for us to learn from and to transform us through. And, I, and, and I'm not understating that. I want, to, I want to state that as powerfully as possible. He literally transforms us, our mind and soul, as we read the Word. And there's a big book. So there's plenty of time to learn and plenty of opportunity to be transformed. This is how you tap into a literal superpower, by studying, meditating on, and praying over this book day in and day out. As we read earlier in that 2 Timothy passage, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That every means all. You don't need any special revelation to do everything that God has for you and to do everything that God wants from your life. 
The Holy Spirit speaks to us as we read the word that he has written, just as a husband speaks to his wife when he writes a letter to her. But the Holy Spirit does more than what a husband can do for his wife. Beyond just writing the letter to us, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the letter as he interacts with our mind through his indwelling presence, molding our conscience towards God's will as we read. You don't need any more, anything more spiritual or revelatory than this, and neither did I. And seeking something more may, it just may indicate an unsatisfied and controlling heart that wants more from God than the riches he has already given you in his word. You do not need a sign. You only need the word and the spirit, which will always point you to the Son and the Father and empower you to live in true freedom as a slave to righteousness. That's a paradox as well. So just a few points of application as we close. First, be born of the Spirit. It is the only way to, to, to enter eternal life. As Jesus said, he is calling you now. He is calling all of us. He is pointing you to Christ and offering victory over sin and death. The Spirit always points to Christ who paid the penalty for your sins and my sins. He is the only way to salvation and he is waiting with open arms. Do not delay. And I'd love to speak with you afterward if you have felt the Spirit calling you to repentance. Second thing I want to say is to be amazed at the intimate relationship that God desires to have with you. It's not a foregone conclusion that God would create the world this way or create us this way. It is amazing that he's decided to send a helper, a helper and comforter to dwell in us, to dwell in every believer, to teach us and to remind us of all that he said and did. It would be amazing if he had just given us the word, but he doesn't just give us the word. He also helps us to understand that word. Do not spurn this help. You cannot do it on your own. Lean hard on the spirit every day in prayer and ask him for help in your time of need. And then finally, to be supernaturally transformed by the Spirit through reading the Scripture. The Spirit has spoken to all of us through His Word, and we don't need another testament. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you study the Scriptures. This is not self-help or self-care. Reading the Scriptures is a supernatural event for the believer. He has promised to give us understanding and to equip us for every good work through the study of His Word. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you the understanding in everything. So I hope to see you next week as we continue to unpack this person called the, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, giving your spirit, not just by giving the word that the spirit has written for us, but by also indwelling us and giving us the power to transform and to actually conform to the word and to become like Christ. Give us a passion for your word. Give us a passion to study it and do change us. Please follow through on that promise as I know you'll be faithful to. Uh, thank you for uh, all that you've done for us through Christ. Thank you that the spirit points to Christ continually. Help us to look to him to the forgiveness of our sins. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.